morning. Why don't you stand? Shake it off. Thank you. Um, last week we started a series, unbeknownst to you and unbeknownst to us because we forgot. Um, <laughs> We started it, we just forgot to to label it. We started a series called This Is Us. And we, uh, Pastor Warren talked beautifully about walking with God and he talked about the two men on the Emmaus Road and how they were walking with the resurrected, resurrected Jesus and they didn't even know it. And one of our primary values as you walk out the door every week, it's got our values and the first one is we are walking with God. So I want you to get that before we begin to talk about today's topic. Um, Our primary value is that we're walking with God. He's not just a tack on. He's not an add on. We are walking with him. He is walking graciously with us. And um, today we're going to unpack our second value as Hope Point Church. And as we do, We were praying before the service, and one of the things that Pastor Warren brought out is, it's not rocket science, what we're about to say today. You, you could probably get up here and say it yourself. You could search the scriptures and find it yourself. But I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would literally highlight something that would be transformational to your heart and to your life. I'm overdoing just Sundays, aren't you? Anyone done enough Sundays to last a lifetime? We need to have an encounter and a transformation with the living God. And that happens as you and I press in, lean in and say, Holy Spirit, I want to hear what you have to say. And so I'm going to ask that you along with me, because I struggled to prepare this simply because I thought I'm preaching to the converted this morning. And I really, the Holy Spirit really began to awaken in me a real hope about what I want to share this morning. And so would you open your hands to heaven as a sign of openness before the Lord and just come with a Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Every distraction, every personal distraction, everything in this room that would want to distract us, we ask that we would be open to you, open hearts, open minds, that you would speak afresh to us today. I pray, Lord God, that it would be literally like a light has illuminated your word and something that we read this morning, something that we hear this morning would would spark something fresh within us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, our second value, if you talk about families have values and uh, in our house, we have one value we talk to our kids all about, about discipline, and it's we do the right thing the first time. We don't have 50 rules in our house, we just have one. We do the right thing the first time. And as you and I are here this morning, um, our house has some values that we feel a hallmark, I guess they could, you know, they're on the wall, they literally define who we are as a group of people. They're not unique to us. In fact, if you go to many places throughout the earth, and especially in um, to gatherings of God's people and the church, they are common amongst the gatherings of his people, but not always found. 
And the first value or the second value we're going to talk about this morning is that we are family. The show This Is Us, I remember when we first watched the show This Is Us, and if you haven't seen it, then it's not really a spoiler because I can't really remember, but I remember we sat down to watch the first episode of This Is Us, and you know, I really enjoyed it and everything. It got to the end, and then there was this huge twist. By the time I got to the second you know, episode and there was another huge twist, I said to Christian, I don't think my heart's going to take this many twists through this show. So, you know, in true Sarah style, I went and found the synopsis so I didn't have to watch it and um, freak out and read um, the synopsis of <laughs> the entire, um, you know, however many seasons there are of This Is Us so that I didn't have to <laughs> watch it every week and get surprised with the twists and tr- turns. But... As is the case of any normal family, there's a whole bunch of things that are unexpected and a whole bunch of twists and turns uh, that happen. I read this quote. It says, if you want to call a family meeting, you just turn the Wi-Fi router off and watch for everyone to come quickly. (laughs) Try it in your house. There were two little boys, ages 8 to 10, and they were excessively mischievous. They are always getting into trouble and their parents know all about it. And if any mischief occurs in their town, the two boys are probably involved. The boy's mother heard that a clergyman in town had been successful in disciplining children, so she asked if he would speak with her boys. The clergyman agreed, but he asked to see them individually, so the mother sent the eight-year-old first in the morning with the older boy to see the clergyman in the afternoon. And the clergyman, a huge man with a booming voice, set the younger boy down and asked him sternly, "'Do you know where God is, son?' And the boy's mouth dropped open. But he made no response, sitting there wide-eyed with his mouth hanging open. So the clergyman repeated the question in an even sterner tone, Where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer, and the preacher raised his voice even more and shook his finger in the boy's face and bellowed, Where is God? And the boy screamed and bolted from the room ran directly and dove into his closet, slamming the door behind him. And when his older brother found him in the closet, he asked, what happened? And the younger brother, gasping for breath, replied, we're in big trouble this time. God is missing and they think we did it. (laughs) Every family has some mischievous boys who get blamed for stuff. Here's the thing about the family of God. We are more than just an organization. Although there are organizational and administrative parts and aspects to the things we do, we're more than a social gathering. We're more than a service or a meeting. We are the church, and the church is a family expression of God on the earth. It's an outpost for his kingdom on the earth in our community. We are God's family represented. God's got his people and we're it. Have you ever heard that saying, oh, they're my people? What's that say? I feel safe with them. They know me. Like they just get me. They're going to, you know, do the wrong thing with me. They're going to go. And God says, I have my people and you're it. You and I, we're it. The Bible says that the family of God uses the word family and the household of faith to describe the collective gathering of a group of people. 
it does indicate the overall expression of God's family on the earth. So together, us and the church next door, our brothers and sisters, we make up the family. But it's very clear in the scriptures that there are local expressions of the family of God. Think about the book of Revelation. There were seven churches. Each had a different word from the Lord specifically for them at that particular time. Why? Because they were a localized expression of the family of God in their location. So when we're talking family of God, we're talking every believer on the earth, joining, linking arms in arms, brothers and sisters in Christ. But specifically, we're talking about you and I together in this place as a, an expression of God and his kingdom on the earth. You know, we went to convention last week, and um, some of us led worship from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. Um, the team did you all proud. The harmony, the heart was beautiful. And um, I got a chance to reflect just a little bit this week, but it was a couple of people who went, and the one word that they kept saying to me as I talked about, hey, that was fun. The one word that they kept saying to me was, you know, it was just like it was family. It was easy. It wasn't hard. Why? We just knew each other. There were no superheroes. There were no standouts. The team consisted of the ones on the stage and the ones babysitting the kids at home. The team consisted of the ones on the stage and the ones in the screen so that everyone else could sing along. The team consisted of, of people who weren't actually on the stage for convention, actually coming and we only needed a certain number of musicians and any one of our worship team could have played. But the ones who didn't play, um, some of them came and just helped us reset the stage here. What does it say? It says we're not out for it for who we are. We're not out for it for what we can get out of it. We're not, out of, we're not doing this because of how great we are. We're doing it because of a family. We're doing it because we get to. We're doing it because um, we are one. At any point in um, today's service, I know, um, as I said to my kids, I'm talking on We Are Family, all of them went, We Are Family. I went, yeah, kind of, but not really. We're not going to go down that track. Um, we pulled up in the car park the other day, and Silas, um, we pulled up in the car park, and there was another car next to us, and he goes, oh, who's that car? And I said, oh, you know, Pastor Warren's got a you know, nice new car, and, and, um, and he goes, well, he didn't tell me he got a new car. I said, he doesn't have to tell you he got a new car. He, just got a... he goes, yeah, but how will we know when he's in the car park? I said, I guess you'll walk in and you'll see when you walk in the door. And I laughed that sense of, and he's, at, and he's nine, he's going to say crazy things, but that sense of family, that sense of, hey, you know, we should communicate. I just thought... Um, Interesting that they have this sense of, even as young kids, of this is my place. This is my safe place. This is a place to call home. I didn't have to, didn't have to work it up. didn't have to make anything happen. Just a natural expression. Here's the thing about families. They're not made up of clones. Um, I have three children in my family, and they are all extremely different. Families aren't made up of clones. They look different. I don't know about your family, but in our family, the members have different professions, personalities, different preferences. There are things that unite us 
that forge us together no matter how diverse we may be. Listen, family does not mean conformity. You don't need conformity for unity. We need to be united despite our diversity. I love kids in this regard because they often don't see differences. I remember when Ella started kindergarten and I said to her, oh, are there any Asian people, uh, any Chinese people in your class? She said, I don't know. I said, okay. I said, well, are there any Asian people, you know, from the continent of Asia in your class? You know, I'm trying to work out what do the classes look like. She says to me, look, I don't even know what an Asian person looks like. There's just boys and there's just girls. And I kind of feel like that's you and me. I mean, I wasn't being at all derogatory to those people from those cultures. I was just interested as to the kind of people in her class. But she didn't see it. She didn't see any difference with any of them but the fact that they're boys and they're girls. That was the key distinguishing marker for her in her class. I walked into, must have been a kindergarten thing. I remember Caleb's kindy orientation. Keep in mind... um, that I married into a South American family, so I have beautiful, brown-skinned children, and I am very white. Uh, I walked into his class. It was a huge school, had eight different classes, and multicultural, lots of different nationalities, and I was the teacher for a long time and taught in a prime... uh, primarily in schools with a huge Anglo-Saxon population. Majority of the kids uh, had white skin. And it didn't worry me in the slightest. I was, I was in a family. I was married to someone that didn't have white skin. Anyway, so I go into Caleb's kindergarten orientation, and he's sitting in the circle. And all of a sudden, I, I stood there, and in my head, I began to count the number of white kids in the room until I realized I wasn't counting my own kid. I realized he was in the kids I wasn't counting. And I came away and went, oh, God, why did I even do that? I don't care. I I don't care that there's different cultures and different nationalities. Why did I even stand stand as a parent, all the parents were watching, and go, oh, there's five white kids in the room, and then realize, oh, my kid's not one of them. And I went before the Lord, I remember that evening, just saying, If that revealed something in me that isn't, I mean, it was the simplest thing. There was nothing that came out of my mouth. There was nothing verbal. But I just went, God, if that just indicates just a little bit of racial arrogance on my part, just remove it. That's what I'm hoping for you this morning that you will find yourself with the power of the Holy Spirit just convicting you of a thought or a predisposition or a way of thinking that you would come before the feet of Jesus and just say, you know that attitude, God, that has risen up? I don't want that. That's, That's not in me and that's not who I am. And would you come... And, and just bring cleansing and forgive me. 
So here's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to find a family in the Bible that was perfect. I wanted to find a family that had it all together that I could just go and go, yes, they're going to teach us all about healthy families. They're going to teach us how to react with each other, how not to, you know, do the wrong thing. They're going to teach us. And um, honestly, I had a problem because there wasn't one. There was not one family that I could find that had every aspect and every area of their life perfectly together. In fact, most of them were shockingly normal. Most of them had their highs and their lows, their celebrations and their conflicts. Most of them had their traumas and their twists and their turns. And I began to see that maybe that was the whole point. That they are beautifully and wonderfully and maybe shockingly human, just like you and I. And that even as you read the stories of how families related and how families got along with each other and look at their mistakes and use that as instruction for your own soul, that just maybe we would be growing together more into the image of Christ even as the day approaches. There's this statement that I guess is the Pinterest version of some of the scriptures that we're going to read this morning. It says, families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. <laughs> and when the scripture refers to the collective gathering of the people of God, descriptive words like family and body are used to describe us. He doesn't say they're a club. He doesn't say they're an organization. He doesn't. Because we're family. In fact, we're one body. To me, that's as close-knit. That's as close as you can get. Your toe is about as close to you as anyone's going to be in this room. That's close-knit. So how do we keep a value like we are family when Easter Sunday, we had our biggest Sunday here maybe in a decade? Our kids' ministry exploded with nearly 100 kids in it, and in here alone were over 400 and something adults. We don't know the exact figure. There are a lot of people in, in here, and that was a great celebration. It, we, we were celebrating the fact that you guys felt like you could bring your friends. We celebrated the fact that God is working and multiplying, that he's doing something amongst us. It was a great celebration. But as we grow and as we uh, move forward and multiply, as is his command, we don't want to lose the very thing that he has called us to be, and that is family. And so how do we keep that and hold that dear? Here's what I want to point out this morning. If you're taking notes, our first, we're going to turn to 1 John 3, 1 to 24. There are five things the scriptures do to teach us about the family of God. And the first one is this. We are related for one reason. We have the same father. We are related for one reason. We have the same dad. 
We're not related because we necessarily chose each other. That's not what makes us family. I didn't get a say um, to say that my natural brother was mine. I had no say in that whatsoever. That was taken out of my control. He is my brother because we have the same father. And that is the same for you and me. We are related because we have the same good, good father. We're not related because we always agree. We're not related because it's easy to get along with each other. We're not related because we look the same or we think the same or we have um, the same ideologies or even because we come from the same um, ethnicities or cultural backgrounds. That, that is not why we're family. We are family because we belong to our Heavenly Father. Let's have a look at 1 John 3, 1 to 24. It says it this way. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that you should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it, it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Notice that it doesn't say, well, you're a child of God, but you're not. The writer, John, says we are, collectively, we are the children of God. So if you and I are the children of God, what makes us family? We have the same father. Same dad, same father. In Luke 15, 11 to 32, there's a story that whether you're a churchgoer or not, you would recognize, and it's of the prodigal son, and it's found in Luke 15, 11 to 32. I'm going to read you the full story and just put the part that I want to focus in on the screen. In my opinion, some of our translations write the prodigal son or the lost son I think sometimes we miss the hero of the story. I think the heading could be the loving father. Says it this way. Luke 15, 11. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Just a bit of a side issue here. He went to the pigs. The Jews don't eat pork, bacon. They don't eat anything from a pig. This is telling us he went outside of his own people. He went to a group of people that weren't familiar to him, to a group of people that weren't his own. In that day and age, it would have been, um, I mean, even in this day and age, put it in this context of you as a, uh, an individual, if you had kids or relatives and they came to you and said, hey, one day you're going to die, so before you die, can you give me my inheritance now? Literally what that means is you'd have to sell up 
property. You'd have to sell a whole bunch of stuff and give, give that away. Literally, I mean, demeaning yourself. Literally affecting you as a, a landowner or someone. You think about it. This is, this is what's happening in this story. These kids come and said, hey, give me my inheritance now. And the father's gone and said, Okay, and he began, gave him his inheritance. He goes to somewhere he shouldn't be, far off, squandered it. And then we pick up the story in verse 17, one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible. It says, and when he came to his senses, did God help us come to our senses? When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Here's what we're going to read on the screen. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Interesting that he brings the robe, the ring, and the sandals. In that culture, the robe represented protection and covering. What was the father said? No more exposure. I've got you covered. I've been watching for you. He's been watching. I mean, it says he was watching. He's been watching. Can you imagine the father, his son gone off, getting up every morning and looking and just waiting? Waiting for him to come. And that's the picture of the father toward you. Just waiting for you to come. And he's watching. And he sees him a long way off. He doesn't wait for the son to come to him. The scripture says that he goes to the son. And then he calls for three things. He calls for protection and covering with the robe. Then he gives him the family ring. He gives him the ring this ring in, the, in that culture signified dignity. It signified affection and authority. What's he saying? I'm restoring, I'm restoring you here. I'm restoring you into the family. You wanted out. You thought it was better a different way. Here, take this ring. And then the last one he says, bring the sandals. This, this one actually is such a beautiful picture. Servants didn't wear sandals in the first century. Servants had bare feet. Sons wore sandals. Sons wore shoes. He arrives back. I mean, can you, if you've seen the roads... They're rocky, they're dirty, he's got no shoes on, probably his feet are back, cut, bleeding. I mean, this is him coming back. Whether or not even he had sandals and he took them off, he wasn't game to come back as a son. That's what we know. 
whether or not he wore the shoes out or whether or not he took them off knowing I don't deserve to be called the son, we don't know. But we know that he arrived without any shoes on. And when he arrived without the shoes on, the father goes and puts the sandals. He tells the servants, get the sandals. And he, sandals were put on his feet. What's he saying? You can call yourself anything you like, but to me, you're my son. And you know what? Some of you have discounted yourself from the family of God because of maybe places you've gone or where you've felt like you you know, got out of the father's house and his word to you this morning is that we're family, not because we're perfect, we're family because we have a good father and that good father has been waiting for you even when you're a long way off. And that good father comes with healing, restoration, comes with the ring of, of authority and dignity, comes with the robe of protection and comes and says, no, 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 I no longer call you servants. You're children of God and that is who you are. The second thing is we carry the family name. We're family because we carry his name. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and... Actually, I think I've got that wrong. Oh, there we go. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said. For we are also his offspring. Our kids carry our last name. They carry our family name. Why? Because of who their father is. You carry, you carry his name. Not Hope Point. You carry the name of God. You carry the name of Jesus into your workplaces, into your groups, into your homes, wherever you are. Why? Because he's your dad. And that name belongs to you. Isaiah 43, 7, prophet says, Even every one of you that is called by my name, for I, God says, For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. He has called you. What? By his name. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according, listen, to the good pleasure of his will. He wanted to adopt us in. So the first one is we're related because we have the same father too. We're related because we carry the family name. Three, we are God's people. In Genesis 17, we'll turn there. God has this encounter with Abraham or Abram. Verse 1, it says, Abram was 99 years old. I think everyone else is younger than that, so this counts us in. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. 
Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God. Galatians 3.29 says it this way. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That promise that he gave to Abraham was for three things, for blessing, for multiplication, and for promise. He said, I would bless you. What does blessing mean? If your father gives you his blessing, here's what he's giving you. He's giving you approval and affection. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Literally says, I'm giving you my approval and my blessing, my approval and my affection. Other places, blessing indicated almost like a happiness, like a smile. Literally saying, you bring a smile to me. Just even your very presence does. When he says multiplication, he's talking about just fruitfulness and great fruitfulness. He's talking about what's to come. And when he talks about promise, he was talking about a promised land. And those three promises of covenant, Galatians 3 says, apply to you and I today. That we are people of promise. We live today as family of God knowing that we have hope to come, that a promised land will be where there's no tears, no pain, no sorrow, that that promised land is coming. That as um, covenant-keeping people, as heirs of the promise, that he's promised that we'll see multiplication, that we will see the generations to come um, carry on what has been started. And then that we would know the blessing, the affection, and the affirmation and the acceptance of our wonderful Father. Something that has been really, um, that I've been chewing over for a long time is that God often will describe himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham. And I've had this question before the Lord for about 18 months now, going, why wasn't it Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? You said Abram, you said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You didn't say Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. You said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, this is really interesting. Um, Three times in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the words Abraham, Isaac, and Israel are used. But get this, never from God. They were from people. Moses did it, I think Elijah did it, and there was one other, I think it was in Hezekiah's time, a king did it. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which he is. But when God used, God described himself. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I'm like, God, what is it about Jacob that you kept? You didn't change, you didn't, you know, his perfected name was Israel. Jacob means deceiver. We know Jacob's, 
If you read in um, the Old Testament Jacob's story, he, you know, went to fight out for his birthright and he was a trickster. Eventually, he would wrestle it out with God and he would leave with a limp and a name change and the blessing. But why would God, even Jesus would refer in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, 32, Jesus began to talk about the resurrection of the dead and Jesus said that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love the fact that he says, Jesus says, I am. Because it means that those that have gone on have not died, but they live because he's currently their God. Anyway, that's just personal. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Psalm 46, the psalmist would write, the God of Jacob is my refuge. I think using those three, that God would identify himself as their God. Here's what he's saying. With Abraham, he's saying, I'm the father who makes covenant. With Isaac, he's saying, I'm the father who provides. The very first time that we see Jehovah Jireh, or that kind of name of God appear, is when um, Abraham takes Isaac up to sacrifice him on the altar, and a ram is provided. It wasn't about money. It was about providing for the sacrifice. The very first time Jehovah Jireh was used was right there. And so God reveals through Isaac that I'm the father who provides. And then I think when he keeps saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying this, I'm not ashamed to call Jacob mine. I'm sure there's a lot of other theological reasons. But maybe this was just how the Holy Spirit was explaining it to my heart. I'm not afraid to call myself his God. I'm not. But I'm not afraid to move him on from there and to change him. And I'm not afraid to make, you know, feel like he has to stay that way. But forever I'm going to identify myself so that my people know You don't have to be perfect for me to be your God. You don't have to have it all together for me to be your God. I am the God, he says, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Exodus 3, 2, at the burning bush, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think over 10 times, God would use that way to describe himself to his people. Why? He's the God of the generations. What's he saying? I'm not, the God, I'm not the God of the old people, and I'm not the God of the young person. I'm not the God of families. I'm not the God of singles. I'm the God of all of them. I'm the God of the old and the young and the families and the singles and the kids. I'm the God of generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fourth thing the scripture teaches us is that we're a family of faith. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, we have the opportunity. We should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. This translation says, I think it's the NLT. Other translations would say the household of faith. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
the key mark that distinguishes us from every other entity is our faith. Our faith. Our unreserved trust and built upon the foundation of this is what we believe. That's the foundation of our household. You know, different organizations, different clubs, whatever they have, the thing that sets them apart. The scripture says the thing that should set us apart is our faith. That's why when we, when our council meets together, it's not enough that they're just good businessmen. They have to be faith-filled businessmen because they're kingdom-minded. When we um, have leaders, then they can't just be people who have a heart for kids. They have, to have, they have to have a heart for kids and an assurance of faith that they're going to pass on um, the knowledge and the stories of God to the next generation. Um, last August, we were having some issues in our house with math homework. And um, I remember seeing this and I was scrolling through social media as you do. And I remember seeing this sign that it said, we do hard things. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to get that printed. I'm going to put that in our house. And every time I hear whinging about, eh, I have to do mass, I'm going to go, no, Tabars do hard things. Literally, I know that a month later, I would have to use that guiding statement to guide my own heart. I thought it was just for maths. I thought it was just for the whinging kids who didn't want to do homework. I didn't know that it was for picking out funeral caskets and flowers and walking through the journey that we had to walk through. But that guiding statement, I can't even tell you how many times, came back to my heart. No, no, no. Tabaz do hard things. What was I doing? I was instructing my heart when everything in me wanted to back out. And some of you, even coming into a building and a group of people like this, everything in you wants to back out. I know how you feel. And I felt like as I went before the Lord that there were some guiding statements that we could add in to our vocabulary and to our language that would literally anchor in to who we are so that when we want to back out and we want to complain and grumble and the homework seems a bit too hard and... I can't believe I'm doing this right now, that the guiding statement literally starts to guide how we act. And here they are. If you have a pen, here they are. I used the seven signs of Hope Point, the seven signposts of Hope Point family. I used the word forgivers as, um, as a bit of an acronym because I think if you... Buckle it right down to it, that we need to be great forgivers. Because there isn't anyone in this room that has it all together. And the very, to be honest, the fact that we're not perfect makes me feel like I can be a part. Because it makes me feel like I can't mess it up too bad. It makes me feel like, okay, I can grow here. I can learn here. This is a place that can show grace. Ruth Bell Graham said that a marriage is born of two great forgivers. And I want to spin that a little bit and say that a great church family is a place that forgiveness is found. I know forgiveness is easy when you're not the one who has to do it. I get it. Anyway, they're not all about forgiveness. Some of them are fun. But these are um, 
We're going to use the word forgivers. Here we go. The first one, F. Food and fun are our love languages. I'm serious. I don't think you go to a Hope Point event, and we've been to a lot, where um, it doesn't even matter if it's just some fruit or a cup of tea or something, but food um, is one of our languages. O is we own it and we work on it. We're a work in progress and we work on things. We don't try and outdo, like we can't outdo last Mother's Day with next week. But we improve, we refine our processes and we think, oh, how can we do this better? But it's our responsibility, we own it. Ah, we refuse to major on the minors. Unity doesn't mean conformity, we are diverse. Here's what I mean by that. We have an election coming up next week and shock horror to some of you, we all don't think the same. Here's what I want to say about that. You can come in here and major on the minor. You, we can major on the things that don't unite us. We can. We can have a conversation that will last all day about our differing opinions. Our, we each have a responsibility to go before the throne of God and to hear his heart and to vote if you're a citizen or a, um, you have eligibility to vote and to vote responsibly and as the Lord instructs you to do. But we are not all the same. We are not. And I refuse to major on the minors. I refuse to look and go, well, they think differently to me on that, so they're different. I refuse. I've been to um, John's house and had a beautiful ribeye steak, immaculately cooked. My father-in-law does South American barbecues and cooks beautiful steak. And I've been to Tony's place and had beautiful Lebanese barbecue. I have to tell you something. I like them all. We can enjoy diversity without elevating one as better than the other, can't we? We can have a sense that we refuse to major on the minors. We just refuse. You don't have to think like I do. But we do need to respect one another and sometimes unity requires the fact that we literally drop tools and go, you know what? You know what unites us? Talk about the things that unite us. Begin to talk about the grace of God. Begin to talk about the love of God. Begin to talk about how great God has been to you and all that he's done to you. That's, that unites us. Refuse to major on the things that divide us. Where else can you see people of every ethnicity, every walk of life, every cultural expression, where can you see that demonstrated on the earth today except for the church? We refuse to major on the minors. G, we have grace for change. Transformation happens here. I was dedicated by Pastor Don as a baby in 1978, not in this building, but in our church, 40 years ago. But I'm not the same as I was 40 years ago, or as a teenager, or even as a young mum, or even as I was five years ago, or God knows, six months ago. One of the most beautiful things about you, 
as a group of people is that you give us grace to change. You allow us, you allow transformation to happen here. Whether it's transformation from a non-believer to a believer or whether it's transformation as we grow and develop just in age, transformation happens here. If the worship team could could come. Eyes, instead of judgment, we choose mercy because love does that. We're not a church that should pick up rulers. We're a family that extends mercy. V, we're vulnerable and real with each other. We choose to do life together. E, everyone matters. Generations, cultures, backgrounds, they all matter. Ah, we repair conflict as quickly as we can. S, we're safe for those who are hurting. I need to say to you this morning that even as I wrote those things down, I could think of times where I have been hurt personally and I could think of times where many of you have because I've counseled you or walked you through things where you have been hurt because maybe we didn't do all those things. Here's why we didn't. Because we're human, we're imperfect, we just have a perfect father. It doesn't mean we don't get better. It doesn't mean we should relate better. It doesn't mean that. But the thought struck me is, when I had that statement about our maths homework that Tabaz do hard things, sometimes we did do the hard things and sometimes, honestly, mum did the homework, the maths homework really quick because she didn't want to have a fight and everyone went to bed. Every teacher knows, come on, that is just how it happens. I do not want to fight about nine times table one more time, dear God. So quickly, let's do it. Yeah, everyone's happy. Yeah, yeah, go to bed. So even though I said to bars do hard things, you know what, sometimes you just get tired. But ever since that statement has been resonating in my heart, my poor kids have had to do their own maths homework. And I had to do some hard things of my own. And we as a family walked through some things. So those statements were not, hey, this is who we are, we're perfect. And that you could sit there and go, well, you didn't do this and you didn't do this and you made this mistake. That's pointless because we agree with you. We've missed it on all of them. Just like I did the mass homework and missed it on that. But that doesn't stop us wanting to get better. That doesn't stop us going for better. That doesn't stop us trying to find better ways to relate. It doesn't stop us surrendering ourselves to the Father and watching as He transformed us more and more into His image. And what happens? The closer you get to the Father, the closer you are to His kids. Pity help the person that says, well, I like you, but I can't stand your kids. What is that? We're we're a family. That's how it is with the family of God. Would you stand, church? This is just a personal conviction of mine, and, and it's this, it's that. The same level of engagement the same level of vulnerability, the same level of 
I'm all in, that I give to the house of God and to others is the same level. That participation is the same level that I feel. And so it is possible to sit here and just feel like it's a service. It's possible to feel like, well, they all know each other and this is a social thing. It's possible. But what you sow, you reap. I watched that for myself in, with my mom. She sowed love everywhere she went. And she reaped that love. And as a consequence, as a family, we reaped that love. I want to tell you, she never walked in here with a sense of, well, they didn't talk to me today. Never, ever heard that out of her mouth. It was all, oh, I miss talking to them today. It was always, oh, I didn't get to see them. I wonder if they're okay. Always, never, ever, ever did I hear, oh, they walked past me and didn't talk. Well, they looked a bit funny, ever. It didn't even cross her mind. And it was just a decision. I wonder if we made the decision that we would choose to do life together. In education, we call it parallel play. Caleb said to me last night, are you going to Kmart? I'd like to go. I said, no, I'm not parallel shopping with you. He didn't want to go to where I wanted to go. He wanted to go to the toys and to what, I'm not going to parallel shop with you. I want to go. And if you want to come, we can be together. But I'm not going to, anyway, he stayed home. Let's put it that way. And we can come and sit parallel next to each other and not do life together as a choice. Or we can be vulnerable enough. Like the scripture says, when you're sick, you go to the leaders and ask them for help. Not, oh, they should know I'm sick. I know it seems weird, but we don't always know everything that's going on if no one tells us. It's not that we don't care. Sometimes we just have no idea. And the scripture is very clear that it's your job and my job. I got really sick 18 months ago. I called for people to come to my house and anoint me with oil. I did. Oh, but you're a pastor. Well, who cares? I'm you. I'm just like you. I, I needed people right there. And so I called for them and they came. It was my job as a responsible member of the household of God. And so this morning, um, they're just going to play something. And for one minute, I want you, I'm going to ask you some questions if you bow your heads. As we finish today, who is it that you need to forgive? What signpost spoke to you the most? Where do you need to change the conversation you're having? What attitude is the Holy Spirit talking to you about? Have you taken yourself off the field and put yourself on the bench because it's safer there? Holy Spirit, speak to us. 
It's a value that we hold dear. It's something that we love about us, that we're family. We don't take each other or ourselves too seriously. We can enjoy, celebrate, create memories. We can walk the hard roads. We're not perfect and we do miss it. But God, when you described through your prophets, through your apostles in the scriptures, when you described us as a group of people, you described us as a household. You described us as the family of faith. We thank you for those that have gone on before in Hebrews 11, and we can even think of people in our own lives who mark the walls of even our gatherings with the way that they have prayed and loved and served. But God, we are not satisfied with just leaving it to the heroes. We know that family is born out of trouble. Family is born for adversity. Family exists because we were meant to do life together and no man is an island. And I pray, Lord God, today that you would come. And when we have wanted to skip out because it seemed too hard, where we have been hurt, which it will inevitably happen in a family situation, I pray, Lord God, that you would come with your healing and your life, and that you would give us the courage to love again, to hope again, to give grace again, and to forgive again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you leave, would you go find someone to hug and let them know I'm glad we're family.